Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Tim Durrant, today's host. The by-elections were the big political story of last week, but in amongst the announcements on Thursday of various government publications being released before Parliament shut down for recess, there was one eagerly anticipated document. The long-awaited government response to a report in November 2021 from the Committee on Standards in Public Life, which set out how the government would improve ethics and integrity in its work. The response also covered reports from the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee and Nigel Boardman, the lawyer who was asked to investigate ethics in government after the Greensill lobbying scandal. It all feels a long time ago now, but 2021 and 2022 seemed like they were full of never-ending scandals in government. From lobbying from David Cameron and Owen Paterson, to Suella Braverman's leak of classified documents, wallpaper gate, party gate, and plenty of other gates. Labour has been pressing the government on this issue, and the repeated scandals, particularly under Boris Johnson's leadership, have surely been part of the reason for the Labour lead in the polls. So, last week the government attempted to turn the page and set out how it is going to clean up its act and uphold standards and ethics. And we're here to get into the details of it, to see where they've been ambitious, where they've been more cautious, and how this agenda might develop in the coming months. I'm delighted to be joined by a great panel to discuss all of this. Fleur Anderson, Labour MP for Putney and Shadow Paymaster General. Hi Fleur. Hello, thanks for having me on. John Penrose, Conservative MP for Western Supermare and the former Prime Minister's anti-corruption champion. Hi John. Hi, glad to be here. And Dr Sue Hawley, Executive Director of Spotlight on Corruption. Hi Sue. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me to this great, interesting discussion. Thank you for joining us. So let's start with the positives. What are the things in the government's report that stood out as welcome changes? Sue, perhaps I can go to you first. Yeah, I mean, there are two key things. One of them is having a central database of the lobbying that goes on with ministers as an important resource for people to go to. And there were some really important changes there, like having monthly rather than quarterly releases uh, and also expanding who is covered, so more senior civil servants. We also think there are some real gaps there, but since we're focusing on the positive, I'm just going to focus on the positive for the moment. And I think also the other really important bit is the recognition that the current revolving door rules, uh, the business appointment rules, aren't working and that we need contractual obligations and the proposal to have a ministerial deed to try and make it legally binding when ministers leave government and go into private sector jobs. So I think those for us stood out as the two biggest reforms with real potential to increase transparency and enhance how the revolving door is regulated. Fleur, I I imagine you you might be keen to talk about the gaps and the the failings in the government's policy, but is, is there anything positive you would say, building on what Sue just said? Yeah, I think there is an overall lack of movement uh, and attack in their approach to this, which we will come on to later, but also the way that it's been communicated, the fact that it came out on the last day of the the summer before we go off on recess. And it's not really, you've mentioned turning a page, but there's no no fanfare about this, no no sense that this is a big deal, we're going to really clean up our politics. I think that's what people would want to hear. Um, in terms of positives, so those that greater transparency that Sue talked about, I welcome 
more more frequent having to return and and report back on meetings that are held so from quarterly to monthly more frequent meetings it's really important otherwise things have gone by the meetings happen it's all gone and you don't get to actually scrutinize it um, but also an increase in the number of meetings um, the number of government meetings that will be reported on um, that financial sanctions potentially for those who don't follow the rules about the appointments after they have left office is really important because otherwise all the time that the minister is in office, they'll have one eye on what will be coming next. And so having greater sanctions than what Lord Pickles talked about, having teeth in that will be really important. And another area is the appointments of non-executive directors will come under better scrutiny. Um, It will be treated as just another public appointment rather than the current system, which allows far too much of just appointing friends, donors, who knows who, to be those non-executive directors in each of the government departments. And John, was there anything else that stood out to you as as something that you particularly welcomed in this report? No, I think it's unanimous. And I think that uh, I would, you know, starting with Sue's two crucial points, one about the additional transparency returns and making them much more sort of standard format. And things like data formats sound really tedious and nerdy, but actually in this area, they really, really matter um, because it just allows you know, um, armchair auditors up and down the country, as well as politicians, as well as people like Sue and everybody else, and and investigative journalists to genuinely get to grips with the data. So those better transparency returns, which both Fleur and Sue have both mentioned, absolutely crucial. And the really simple but really effective mixture of contract changes for civil servants and ministerial deed signing and giving the ACABA committee of stopping the revolving door risk, giving it proper legal teeth, absolutely essential. So both of those are my top two as well. I I think everyone's on the same page on that. Let it never be said that there's something too nerdy for an Institute for Government podcast. We don't believe in that. So I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper on um, on the the revolving door uh, stuff because yeah, as, as you said, John, you know, clearly a big theme and and one of the things that the government I think was perhaps keenest to promote that they are making these changes. They, as you said, they they looked at contractual clauses to enforce the rules for civil servants and a legal deed for ministers. But they did reject some of the recommendations. They said, we're not going to have extend the the length of time that these rules will apply for a five-year period. Uh, they said, we're not going to issue a blanket ban on working for lobbying agencies for people leaving government. And they also said that while they've given Eric Pickles's committee, ACABA, the, the committee, a bit more resource, they don't think there's a sort of big requirement for the way it works to change. Should there have, there have been more done there? Or actually, was that quite a sensible kind of arrangement that they've arrived at? I think it was a good and balanced package. I think it was, it, I don't want to minimise the change which um, the legal deed signed by ministers will have. I mean, most of the concerns about misbehaviour have come from former ministers not necessarily um, abiding by ACABA's decisions. And this will mean that they, they flipping will have to or else, and there will be proper legal consequences if they don't. It hasn't been exclusively ministers. There have been some civil servants. I mean, the, the Greensill case was um, uh, was an advisor, really. And so that, so that, that matters too. But in either case, those, those legal things matter. I, I'm quite a fan of allowing flexibility because each case is different in terms of the number of um, years that any uh, any measures need to apply for, because depending on what you're coming from and what you're going to, because there's matters coming into government 
as much as leaving government and going on to other things afterwards, both those those bits of the revolving door matter. And the length of time for which there is a potential conflict of interest um, can be very varied indeed, depending on the, uh, on the circumstance. So I'm quite a fan of the flexibility which they've maintained. The bit which I um, am hoping to see more about, and I don't think I didn't see that Sue or Fleur may, may have spotted it um, in the in the announcement, was that um, there's a question mark about the zeal with which the rules are applied by different departments to their senior civil servants. There's an enforcement issue there, if you like. Some departments, um, uh, anecdotally, are good at this. Other departments are less rigorous. Um, and I think it's really, really important that they're all equally rigorous and equally serious about it. Um, and that there is somebody checking on them. Um, you don't have to have a sort of big central compliance unit, but you do have to have somebody auditing to make sure that when when people do arrive or leave um, with potential um, conflicts of interest, that those standards are being equally seriously applied, no matter whether or not you're joining or leaving the Minister of Defence or DCMS um, or DWP. It shouldn't matter. Um, it's absolutely vital. So that's that's something which for me at least, is an unanswered question and something which still needs to be bottomed out. Fleur? Yeah, I'd like to have seen some more clarity on those rules, actually, but it's it's left a bit too much up to discretion as to how and when they'll be applied. So um, the Committee of Standards on Public Life and the PACAC Committee um, both asked for ACABA rules to prohibit appointments for two years where the applicant had a direct responsibility of uh, of hiring the company in five years where the applicant is lobbying the government. So a sort of a wider remit there. And that seems to be quite a clear rule. Um, Labour, we would bring in a, the five-year rule ourselves. But I think it, it depends how much you're going to trust um, those who are making these decisions about um, enforcing the standards. And I think public trust has eroded so much that putting in more rules on these aspects would be better than just leaving it to a case-by-case basis. So I think it was disappointing that, that those limits have not been set. I think there are some outstanding questions on this. And I think Pickles's, uh, Lord Pickles's letter in response to it was very interesting because he he was obviously very disappointed that no timeline has been set. Uh, and he does talk about, you know, waiting to see whether the deed and the contract passes what he calls a threshold of credibility. And just picking up on your point earlier, Fleur, I mean, the government didn't completely commit to financial penalties. They could, they, they talked about maybe in the future, um, they, they hoped that the, you know, having a contract in place uh, would make the system so much better that they wouldn't need to do that. But uh, I was a bit confused and I, I don't know whether I've missed something, but, you know, is the financial penalty coming in or, or is it going to be further down the line? And I think if they're not thinking of a penalty, the thing that was a bit absent for us is what is the sanction if it's breached and who's going to impose it? Uh, because there's a little bit of lack of clarity as well between COBA's role and, as you said, John, the role of the departments. And I think the fact that the government have also not accepted the proposal to have a central compliance function is really key to some of this, because that would have been a way of making sure there is consistency across all the different government departments in all of the rules, really. Just on that financial sanctions, it's interesting that that um, in the coverage of it, that's being leapt on as one of the, the the new aspects of this. But it but it isn't clear to me. I agree, and I think for the public, they feel that it's one rule for them and another for us. And this 
regime has got to stop that feeling that the, there is a different set of rules and it's not fair and that um, politicians are financially benefiting from the system in an unfair way. So those financial systems, if politicians are financially gaining um, from breaking the rules, is really important. But I agree, it's not clear. And, and I just want to pick up on that because I had been assuming but. You know, I think it's right to sort of you know uh, pursue the case for clarification. But I've been assuming that you know the whole point about tightening up employment contracts for civil servants and creating the deed that's illegal deed to be signed, which means you actually have to abide by the terms. That creates the full suite of normal legal remedies for breach of contract or whatever it might be, and you know, and therefore those would be available. Um, I think I would agree with not just. Sue, but also with Lord Pickles and probably Fleur as well, and but I don't want to put words in your mouth, Fleur, um, that if you have those legal remedies and you then don't use them, then it doesn't pass any sort of threshold of credibility. But I, I think it would be politically impossible for any government of any stripe to have those legal remedies and then decide not to use them. They won't all be financial, bear in mind. I mean, some of them will be enforced gardening leave because you can't take that job up yet, et cetera, et cetera. And so they, they aren't all financial. Um, but they are the full suite. And if they ain't, um, then Fleur, I, I would agree with you, that then f- fails the sniff test about one law for politicians and one law for everybody else. It's the same law for everybody. And I've, I had assumed that this was, you know, this was an attempt to, to sort of level the playing field. So I can feel that we're already sort of moving into the area of, you know, what, what could have been better? What, sh- what are the gaps? Where are, where are the disappointments? So let's, let's go there properly. So Fleur, perhaps, can we start with you? You know, where, what do you think are the big missed opportunities here for, from the government's point of view? Well, they were asked to over, uh, for an overall new approach. So I think that that's the big missed opportunity to take this in the round, to look at everything in our system, many of which, as it says in the reports, they've been there for some decades, some parts of it, some parts are working really well, some parts are not. It's a bit of a spaghetti of different regulators and interests and bodies. Um, and this was a chance to bring it all together, potentially, and look at it in the round. And uh, and instead, there was a promise of clarifying the distribution of formal accountabilities across the system. So accepting how it was really and just saying it just needs a bit more formalising and people don't understand it a bit more and we're going to have a training package. And I just don't think that cuts it with the public at the moment. That doesn't make the change we bring in. And one other area I'd just particularly highlight is the independence of the advisor on ministerial's interests. So the ethics advisor is still going to be, it's down to the prime minister um, to, a, to a point, but also down to the prime minister to, at the fi- in the final instance, decide which investigations to go ahead with and not. And that system kind of seemed to work until we got to a particular former prime minister, but it doesn't work anymore. Um, and to, to just leave that alone and, and not agree with the recommendations of the reports um, is really disappointing. And one more thing, I think, about the status of the prime ministerial code. So that's um, a big section of this, which is, should it be in primary legislation? So how how much should you be asked to, as a minister, to really apply that code? And, and what sanctions would you have um, that that's not being strengthened either? That's brilliant. And, and that leads me on to a question I wanted to put to John, which is, what do you think of this argument, John? In, in the government's paper, they argued... Uh, that they wouldn't be putting the ministerial code into legislation, as Fleur said, or indeed changing the appointment process of the independent advisor, because to do so would kind of risk blurring the boundaries between sort of executive and legislature. It might involve the courts in, in ministerial code investigations. Do you buy that argument? Do you think that's that's robust? 
Yes, I do. It, it's, it's, it's a long-standing argument as a successive governments of all political stripes, you know, way back to Brown and Blair and well beyond before them as well have, have, have uh, taken that approach. Um, it, it, it creates uh, a huge opportunity for anti-government lawyers of left or right, depending on the political hue of the government of the day, huge opportunities for them to play games if it is justiciable. Um, however, that shouldn't be an argument for leaving the system unreformed. And in fact, there was a small reform which was largely unnoticed about a year and a half ago under the previous independent advisor, which I think is actually a great deal more significant than anybody really sort of gave it credit for at the time, which is this notion that the advice from the independent advisor to the prime minister about what investigations should be done gets published in the end. And that means that, broadly speaking, it has since then become, I think, all but impossible to envisage any prime minister of any party saying, no, you can't investigate that. Um, unless they've got a really, really, really good reason which stands up in the court of public opinion because it's going to come out. And, and really the only reason that I can think of um, would be you know, because it's going to you know, imperil national security or something terribly, terribly sort of serious like that. Uh, other than that, I think that the uh, independent advisors now got the, you know, the, the ability to launch pretty much anything that they want because the Prime Minister of the day um, would have to justify it if they said no. Um, and I think that's that hasn't really sort of had a, had an awful lot of airtime and play so far, but I think it really matters. I, I think the other point as well is that um, Lord Christopher Geith, who was the previous um, advisor who, who resigned, I think um, felt in a difficult position, which I think was unnecessary. Um, he felt in a difficult position because he felt he'd been appointed by the Prime Minister, and then if he needed to investigate the Prime Minister, that made his position in, in, impossible and, and, un, and, and untenable. And I think... I hope that his successors now and in future will take a different view. I don't. I think they can take a different view. I think it's perfectly reasonable for them to do so. And say instead, um, no, I'm appointed by the Prime Minister, but if, you know, God forbid, any future Prime Minister needed to be investigated, um, that doesn't stop me from recommending that they should be. There's no conflict in my position in that. Um, and I can recommend it, and I can recommend it in a way which eventually becomes public as well. So, so I, I think that's a great deal stronger than anybody has realised and it's one of those sort of tiny little changes in a back room that I think is a great deal more powerful than we've been giving it credit for. And I say that as somebody who used to hold that the um, that the power for the independent investigator should be to launch whatever they liked. I think they've actually got it now already as a result of that. Sort of in a in a de facto way, yeah. Sue, so what what are your views on that? And then also uh, perhaps more broadly on on other things you would have liked to have seen in the government's proposals. Yeah, I mean, I think we are disappointed, if I'm honest, that they haven't picked up the importance of really showing to the public that the regulators are going to be fully independent, whether it's through the appointment process or whether it's putting them on a statutory footing. And those are two different things, because you could have a stronger appointment process, as you, I think, hinted to in your five-point plan, John. And that hasn't happened for the independent advisor. And I think there's a mismatch there between really what the public want to see, because poll after poll shows they do feel that politicians uh, should be regulated by more independent regulators and not be not by people who the politicians themselves appoint. And they don't trust that. They don't trust 
uh, the idea that someone who's appointed by the politicians will actually properly regulate them. So I think that that was a missed opportunity. Um, and I think um, this issue about whether the courts can come in and interfere, I mean, it's an interesting one. I'm probably on a slightly different page from you, John, on this, because I think you know, if you talk to constitutional experts, uh, there are definitely ways around that, particularly if you put the independent regulators on a statutory footing. But also, I think the trouble that we're left with is that ultimately in the system, the prime minister is judge and jury. And we know that, you know, we need to learn the lessons from Trump and Johnson, that populist leaders um, don't really uh, judge themselves in a way that the public would maybe judge them uh, uh, when they have committed wrongdoing. So I think there is a still a, you know, too much of the good chap uh, theory of government. And there is a way of doing it where the prime minister still gets to constitute their cabinet, but that the independent advisor has more power to recommend sanctions and determine breaches. And I think those are the two areas in relation to the independent advisor where, um, you know, it, it is still a bit weak uh, in our view. And I think overall, I think, again, coming back to what the standards regulators themselves have said, I think Lord Evans's uh, comment, some repairs have been done, does kind of sum up, this is not a major upgrade, some repairs have been done. And I think the other areas, even with the lobbying, the new lobbying transparency rules, you know, they're not going to cover special advisors for instance, despite the fact that Boardman, CSPL, the consultant registrar for lobbyists, uh, PACA, everyone has said special advisors really need to be covered and they are a weak link. So I think that's a problem. I think also the fact that informal communications are not covered in any way is going to come back to, to bite the government again and again. And I know, John, we've discussed this in the past, you know, how do you get proportionality there? <laughs> Uh, but I think the fact that the information commissioner has asked for a proper strategic review about how informal communications are being used and that hasn't been picked up on, I think that is going to create a weakness that's going to run and run, um, as we've seen with the COVID inquiry and, and the WhatsApp messages. So I think that was an area with the lobbying registry that is still weak as is the fact that there isn't an accountability mechanism, which, again, I think was in your five-year plan, John, wasn't it, that departments that don't comply uh, with their transparency releases should face some kind of penalty, whether it's the minister uh, or the department um, itself. It's the the enforcement gap. Yeah, absolutely. Picking up on on Sue's point about the SPADs, I, I agree that it would be good if you were expanding the coverage of the transparency returns to include you know, other senior civil servants and so forth, rightly, that, that SPADs should be done as well. But I think that there's a broader question, which Sue said, you know, she and I have debated long and often um, in the past as well, which is transparency will get you quite a long way, but it isn't the answer to everything. Um, and it, and it's a good thing. Um, and, you know, um, I, I, I suspect all three of us will be strongly agreeing um, that, that more transparency is better. But it won't deal with everything because you know, ultimately there's always going to be informal discussions. You, know, you, you, you bump into somebody in the street and you have a chat with them. Um, and, uh, and unless you want your ministers and your civil servants and your SPADs 
all to wear body cams 24-7, um, you know, clearly transparency won't cover all of that. So you have to have other um, you have to have other tools in your toolbox to deal with stuff that isn't covered by either formal channels of communication or um, you know, new channels like WhatsApp or whatever. Um, and so that's where things like ministerial code um, and, uh, and, 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 other, and other things to do with culture and values have to come in as well. You can't get away from, you can't legislate all those things out of any proper integrity system, even though you can try and strengthen the other things as well. But ultimately, you know, it'll only take you so far. And I, and I think it's, it's something where as a country, we need to have a, um, and as, and as political parties, I think we need to have a, a sort of a, an in principle discussion about just exactly what we're expecting to get done here and, and what the inherent limits of it are. And therefore what other things need to happen as well, rather than just le- leaning on transparency every time. Could I come back very quickly on that? Because I think the Information Commissioner had a very interesting proposal and was looking at what other jurisdictions are doing because everyone's dealing with this, you know, communication through social media. Uh, And they were talking about, you know, a duty uh, to document. I think at the moment there's just too much discretion for people to choose, should I disclose this or not? Do you see what I mean? Whereas if you had a duty to document you might be able to avoid covering everyone having to report everything, but where there's an important principle. But, but the, of, the ministerial code still requires ministers to disclose to their private office if they've had a material conversation out, you know, without a without a, a, an official presence. So that that is already in the ministerial code. Um, that you, could, you can impose. A, so the duty already exists. I'm, I'm not quite sure how much further that will get you. I want to bring Fleur back in and let her uh, have a have a have a say. I suppose it's just, my just comment on looking at overall is about how much the public will trust that um, the ethics advisor if it is left up to the prime minister because it's not only about it's about also imagining those conversations that might be going on behind the scenes between the prime minister leaning on the ethics advisor then to to not say that they're going to investigate so even if it it doesn't come out in the in public domain at whatever stage that there was an investigation that was refused it's the perception that that conversation might have happened because there's this just too small a loop between the ethics advisor and the prime minister being appointed by and the only person um, in start initiating those investigations. So that's that's the bit that needs to be changed. And I do agree, though, that there needs to be a parliamentary backstop. There's, there's, this can't be outside parliament altogether. So that is something that we're going to look at more and look at. We're looking at a, a parliamentary committee. Who is it that is that parliamentary backstop that keeps it within the democratic processes um, and, and doesn't um, mean that the courts take over this process and then all sorts of other unintended consequences flow out from that. And yet I think the public do need to know that it's not just within a small loop of potentially two people who are investigating what's going on at the very top of government. So on that topic of the public, you know, we've talked a couple of times about what what people outside Westminster will think about this. I'm, I guess, particularly interested, John and Fleur, in, in, in your views on this. Do you think this stuff... You know, still matters. Obviously, it was very salient last year with Partygate and everything. Does this stuff still still matter to to um, the public? And if it does, do you think what the government proposed last week will that convince people that what they're doing is is going to make a change? I resigned over it. So, so yes, I I think it matters. Um, I think the polls prove that it matter that it matters because 
Um, you know, the, the, the Conservative Party and government's poll ratings started to um, go south at the same time as Partygate began. Um, and, and I think those two um, are you know, very closely linked. So yes, I mean, thank goodness it does matter. It's important that it does. I think people are entitled to expect integrity. Um, and I would be very upset if they didn't think it was important. Um, so it sort of restored my faith in the great British public uh, that, that that is actually something that, that happened, even even though it's uh, even though it's sort of you know, um, hurting my government at the moment. Um, but also, I think I mean I, I suspect probably Phil will take a different view. I think that the package of things that's been announced, I wish it had happened faster, and I've been urging them to do it for for a lot a lot longer. And Sue, Sue and I um, will Sue, Sue will vouch for the fact that I we've had all sorts of conversations with me getting progressively more and more frustrated and saying why won't they get on with it? So I'm delighted it's happened at last. I wish it had happened faster. Um, I think that what they've done is um, some fairly impressive repairs to, to use uh, Lord Evans's phrase. Um, you can always um, think of other things that, that could happen, and there are some gaps which I've already mentioned as well. But this is a really good um, and strong set of steps. Um, whether or not we will need to come back to it, you know, for example, to look at whether or not you include special political advisors in the transparency returns, I suspect we probably will. Um, but this, uh, but they they fixed an awful lot of problems, and providing we you know deal with the enforcement gaps that I was talking about before as well. So there's a, there's a couple of other bits which I would like. Um, but it's a it's a good and strong set of results. I just wish they'd done it faster, and I wish they'd made more of a fuss of it. Um, Fleur, I think you and I would agree on this one. I, I, I wish there'd been a big fanfare. Um, uh, I think it's important. Uh, forget, forget. I think it's helpful for the government, um, but I think it's actually important for democracy that there's a big fanfare here. Um, and then at that point, you know, Fleur and I and Sue can, can all agree or disagree publicly with whether or not it's gone far enough. But the fanfare matters. Because it's part of saying, you know, people are paying attention to this and there are improvements underway. And the argument is about, do, are they enough um, and are they fast enough rather than whether or not they should happen at all? Because everyone agrees on that. Fleur, what are your views? John and I can agree on this. Um, I, do, I do think it looks a bit apologetic to be putting it out in the way that they've done it. And it's not just what you do, but the what, how you do it as well. And so I think not making more because they have made changes here. They could have shouted out about them. They could have explained, this is why we're going it's to change this. stuff to be proud of, yeah. Yes, there's things that they've done here. They are making some, they are making changes. I would say it's not gone far enough, but there are significant changes here that should be talked about. But the fact that they're putting them out on the last day of recess very quietly, it just undermines what they're saying. It makes it look as if they're a bit apologetic about the whole thing. In terms of does it matter, I absolutely agree with John here as well that it really does matter. It matters electorally. On the doorstep, people aren't, aren't going to say, um, I really care about PACAC's um, committee's response and what, what the government's saying on that. Obviously not. But the whole feeling that can you tr can I trust those people? Is it worth me going down to my polling station and even casting my vote? I hate the, the response the most on the doorstep when people say you're all the same or I don't trust any of you lot. I want to have much more of a conversation. I want people to be engaged and they can criticise us, say what we're doing is wrong, but engage. But when that feeling that I can't even trust you enough to engage, that's where this really matters. It matters who becomes a politician. Does, who wants to join this? I'm a new politician. I was elected at the last election. Um, would others want to join us and be the decent people that we expect our politicians to be? It's going to be harder if, if trust is eroded. 
and it matters about the decisions that are actually made. We want our politicians to be making the best decisions, not with one eye on um, what they can get out of those decisions. And we want to be able to trust that. And another aspect is our international reputation as well. So if we are not internationally seen, we're famous around the world, British people, we're decent, we're fair, and that's a brand um, and a way of working, a way of being that we want to keep. And that starts from the top. So we should lead in that way. So all of this seems very, very techy and nerdy, as you said, um, but it is really, really important that we get this right. Sue, anything to add on, on that point? I mean, I think uh, it's always been the case that this is like the kind of wallpaper rather than the furniture in the political room and that people will get out to vote for cost of living or, you know, the NHS, but actually the backdrop of whether they can trust politicians to deliver and whether they can trust their integrity, you know, is really important. So it's always been hard politically to make the kind of case how salient this is to, to voters, I think, because it isn't the number one issue if you ask them. But um, I just wanted to pick up on something you said earlier, John, which my slight concern with the reforms, and obviously there's some really good stuff here and we need to see how it fits in, but is that enforcement gap issue that transparency without accountability can actually worsen uh, the public's trust. Uh, and I think there's quite a lot of academic evidence that like you can do big campaigns about tackling corruption that can make people feel there's more of a problem and actually distrust politicians. But I think uh, I'm a bit concerned that with the, you know, the new lobbying register, we'll see much more of who's meeting government, but we won't necessarily see any action being taken. So I think that is a real danger that does um, need to be kept um, an eye on, really. Um, and I do hope that there's going to be scope in here for the standards regulators to be able to come back and say, look, we just didn't go far enough here. You really do need to take these other reforms seriously. Can I can I come in to, to, to agree with Sue very, very strongly on that last bit and, and just say that the other bit that matters about the transparency returns is not just the central database that published here or promised here, but also that it needs to be easily searchable with the other databases, things like the um, Electoral Commission's database of political donations, um, and also with Companies House, so that you can tell who you know. You can get back to somebody if the, if a company has made a donation, you can find out who the person with the pulse behind the company is. So all of those things need to be cross searchable. And if they ain't, then actually we don't have a system that's that's genuinely going to have teeth yet. Now I, I think that's in there. Um, but I, it's a question for all three of us to just you know, check into the detail and make sure it is, um, and, and for the and for the Institute for Government as well, um, because that's going to be one of the again. This is even more nerdy than before, but it really matters to find out you know, um, who's got influence and who hasn't, and make sure that that is all you know, genuinely transparently disclosed. Absolutely, and I think that's that's perhaps a, a sensible place to kind of try and wrap up this conversation. So I think we've agreed that, you know, some progress from the government, some things that uh, could they could have gone further on, but also it's clear that this is not the end of the story. There will need to be changes. There will need to be further kind of reviews and assessments of this stuff. So perhaps as a, as a final question for you all, if I can put you on the spot, what do you think is the, the one most important thing that the next time this stuff is reviewed, what is the most important change? If Labour is in government, what we will do is to introduce a new independent integrity and ethics 
commission. So to much more look at the whole system and consider what should be in that integrity and ethics commission. So we would, for example, subsume into that the advisory committee on business appointments and the independent advisor. And we would make sure that's genuinely independent as well. So looking at the whole system and making the the much more fundamental changes we need. I wish they had done that here. It could have been done in response to many of the reports already, um, the recommendations being made, uh, and it would also signal a far more wholesale determination to clean up our politics, which I think is what we need. John, what would you like to see as a the next change to come? Um, well, I'm hoping that this one will have, I mentioned before, enforcement and sanctions. Um, I'm hoping that there will be, um, if necessary, um, to go into phrase, heads on sticks, if necessary, you know, if, if, if anybody has done wrong in future, um, and that therefore that will not be a change that's needed, um, because I think that if we do have proper enforcement and proper sanctions, then it is something which will um, do most on its own to restore trust in the way our democracy works and make sure that we, we banish this notion of one law for them and one law for everybody else um, once and for all. So with any luck, that won't be necessary, but that will be my my sort of my watching brief to make sure that there's proper teeth and claws to this new regime. If it does have teeth and claws, um, then I think we're into some of the smaller things that we've been talking about, and particularly um, the transparency returns for political advisors, people like that, they matter a lot, particularly the policy political advisors, um, and they're a puzzling omission at the moment, but they are relatively small compared to, are we actually enforcing this with real energy and determination with with teeth, claws and sanctions too? And Sue, what will you be keeping an eye out for? I think the independence of the regulators and giving them more teeth so they can do that enforcement is really critical. And I think you get a sense from quite a lot of the regulators, they weren't really consulted very much in the production uh, of this response. And I think, you know, that's a way of the public feeling something's being done, because it would give those regulators, whether it's an independent ethics commission, or whether it's, you know, the current ethics regulators, it would give them more public profile. Um, And so I think that will be the thing that we will have to revisit, because I I can't see how we're going to get enforcement without regulators with teeth, really. Brilliant. That is it for today. Thank you to Fleur Anderson, John Penrose and Sue Hawley for joining me. It has been great to get into the detail of what the government is proposing. And you can, of course, read much more on our website if you're interested in this, including a comparison of the government's plans with the various reports they were responding to. We'll also be keeping an eye on this as it develops, so do keep checking back. You can find all of our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And here at Inside Briefing, we're very keen to maintain high standards, so please do leave a review. Over the summer, we'll be looking at what MPs actually get up to during recess and what the right time is to call an election, as well as a special six-part series which reveals what it takes to be a minister. And we'll be back in September for normal service when MPs return and when the government starts to implement some of these ethical commitments. Thank you for listening.